you're kind of shocked that under the surface there is this visceral uh, venom aimed at not just Israel as the Jewish state, but the Jewish people and Jewish people living in the UK, anyone who's Jewish. I'm Brian Mose, a farmer living in Florence, South Dakota, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we welcome back Baroness Claire Fox, who is a member of the House of Lords and probably even more importantly, oversees the Battle of Ideas, which is a gigantic debate program that brings together thousands of people in the heart of London to debate some of the most controversial topics in the world going on. I actually met Claire because back when I was working as the director of millennial engagement for Monsanto, uh, I really wanted to participate in that. I wanted a chance to be on a panel and talk about uh, GMOs and pesticides. And of all the people that denied me an opportunity to come speak at their different events, Claire was actually really big on it. She brought us in. She put together other people that had really different points of view. And uh, it was fantastic. I have always loved debate. I think it is one of the most important things. And what you're going to hear in this conversation is Claire describing the nuances. Certainly, it's one thing to say, oh, I believe in free speech. But what happens when that free speech encounters two different cultures battling over things that are that where people are literally at war, like Palestine and uh, Israel, talking about things like what's going on with Hamas and radical Islam, cancel culture, all these things that we hear about in the news and people talk about a lot, but very few people have the level of knowledge and expertise and really getting into it and actually dealing with the problems of free speech. So we're going to get to that interview in just a moment. But if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you know that I conduct legacy interviews. We started off actually in this room that I'm at right now. I broke out the old studio to be able to talk with Baroness Fox this morning. But now I have a full studio in St. Louis, Missouri, where I sit down with individuals and couples to record their lifetimes of stories. And these stories are designed to be passed down to future generations. If you're interested in having me sit down with either you or a loved one to capture their stories, their childhood, their career, their marriage, parenting, and the wisdom that they want to leave behind, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. And I know it's crazy. It's the middle of or the end of October and we're talking about Christmas, but Christmas is on the way. And if you have been thinking about doing something special for your family, if you would like to have the legacy interview back, you need to do the interview before December 1st to ensure that we can get your interview back to your family member on time. We have a huge list of of, uh, interviews that we have coming up. So they're very limited time slots. If this is something you've been thinking about doing, whether it's in our studio in St. Louis or online, then go to LegacyInterviews.com to uh, find out more and to sign your loved one up to do an interview so that you could watch that video over the Christmas holiday with your whole family. This is a really heartwarming experience. We get letters all the time from the children of people that have done the interviews to say how enjoyable and how fulfilling and how grateful they are to have those interviews and to be able to watch them with the family. So we're going to go to the interview with Claire Fox, and we'll be back next week with another interview. Claire Fox, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be with you. 
So I was watching on YouTube the other day and a clip of you in the House of Lords comes up and it is not the usual speech about Israel and Palestine. It ends up being a speech about not wanting to create more hate crime laws. So what is going on in the UK that that's the direction you took this talk at a, at a pretty pivotal time in uh, world history? So I want to be clear that I spent most of the talk uh, discussing you know, most of my speech and the uh, conflict, discussing the rise of anti-Semitism in the UK, some of the really uh, pernicious and unchallenged uh, anti-Semitism that we're seeing on university campuses, and actually alongside that, the rise of radical Islamist thinking, which has been going unchecked in the UK for some time. And then every week uh, since the uh, October the 7th pogrom, because that's what it was, there's been huge demonstrations on the streets of London in which hundreds of thousands of people have been going out and uh, demanding um, humanitarian support for Gaza and the people of Gaza and Palestinians. And alongside that, some people calling for jihad and all sorts of things. And their whole atmosphere has been pretty toxic. And the temptation then is that you just want to clamp down on it. You know, you're seeing or hearing views that are really unpalatable, very dangerous in, in many ways. You're kind of shocked that under the surface there is this visceral uh, venom aimed at not just Israel as the Jewish state, but the Jewish people and Jewish people living in the UK, anyone who's Jewish you immediately think what we need now is more laws. The problem is that the last thing we need now is to start having hate crime legislation enhanced because that is going to damage what we stand for, which is those of us who believe in freedom and a free society and liberal values. We need to defend that more than ever. I also think it's a bit of a cheat because what's happened is, is that you realise that these unpalatable views exist and you immediately, rather than accepting responsibility for the fact they've gone unchallenged for the last, you know, 10 years or so in this country, your immediate thing is to kind of take them out of the public sphere so no one can see them. But that doesn't actually challenge them. What does that do about the fact we've allowed these views to, to emerge, you know, on university campuses? I've seen that the same in America around identity politics, uh, the people of Gaza presented as a kind of universal victim that everyone should agree with, and the Jews, mm. uh, literally the Jews presented as the epitome of white privilege and therefore the enemy. So you are, instead of the usual anti-Semitism, historically we knew of the Jews running banking and running society, we've got this notion of them being the white privileged oppressors. And so I, I think that that requires a cultural intervention and some bravery and challenge and more laws will make it worse for everyone to express even those challenges. Yeah. And the laws that you've talked about in uh, that are in the UK are way different than the US. Like when I hear other people, it wasn't actually until I heard you describing it that I was like, oh man, is it really that like, are there really that many laws prohibiting what people can say in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that what we've seen is a gradual build-up of public order offences and speech offences that 
one of the points that I was making, which the police are prepared to interpret one minute. So, for example, if you put something on social media challenging um, the transgender ideology, if you call somebody who uh, is a transgender woman, if you uh, even is in a situation where the transgender woman might be being uh, com um, going to court as a potential rapist and then found guilty because it's a man who is a transgender woman, and then you have to say she, and if you say he, which obviously as a rapist, let me tell you, he, that can get the police knocking on your door saying that you have caused an offence or, you know, that's, that's, and there's lots of examples of the police being very trigger happy on that particular issue. We've also had a situation where the, um, the buffer zones around uh, NHS and health facilities, which is all about anti-abortion is standing outside praying. And now the law has changed. So anyone who is standing outside uh, within 100 metres or so of the of the hospitals or the health facilities um, can now be arrested for a breach of and so you've got these ludicrous situations where undoubtedly some people are doing this to prove the point about the law can be standing silently praying and the police will arrest them if they're standing in designated buffer zone now I mean just let me be clear on this one I, I got involved in this in the Lords because I really opposed this law I am completely pro-choice. Pro-abortion is not quite the way, but, you know, that's my side. But I was shocked at how easily the, uh, as it were, my side of the argument were prepared to compromise on the right to protest or free association because people were standing outside abortion clinics praying. And, 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 and basically, um, it might be on slavery. I don't think it's a tactic that is deployed to much effect. That's not the point. I don't, nobody was even trying to argue, by the way, that there was any attempt at stopping women accessing the medical facilities, which they should be entitled to do. It's certainly not very nice if you're going in for a termination and you're kind of met with a bunch of people, you know, who think that you're murdering your child or what have you. But they are, on the other hand, entitled to that opinion. I don't think the law should be involved in that. So we have had instances, high profile instances, which I was referring to people being arrested for silently praying. I mean, you can't make it up. Then you go out on Saturday, um, as was last week, when there was a huge uh, uh, demonstration in support of um, a free Palestine demonstration, which people are entitled to go on that demonstration. But on the in the course of that demonstration, people were climbing up scaffolding outside government buildings. They were defacing public uh, property. There were people shouting for jihad. Um, shouting uh, slogans that were undoubtedly uh, verging on incitement at the very least. But even if you're talking about the actions and the police were just standing by doing nothing. Right. So it was the inconsistency and in the double standards of the police force who seemed to be very reluctant to intervene in terms of that demonstration, even when the law was obviously being breached, whereas they're more than happy to um, interfere in the speech rights of people using some pretty dodgy laws where at least it's interpret, you know, where speech laws are always difficult to interpret. And we've had situations recently of people being arrested because they've shouted some pretty ugly things at football matches, as a lot of football supporters will do. But I don't think they should be arrested for that, right? These are speech, free speech, and free speech 
has to be where you defend hateful speech, ugly speech, speech you completely, profoundly disagree with. But that's more and more not the case in the UK. Who is putting forward these laws and saying like, hey, this is the way we're going to protect our people and this is what we need? Is there somebody demanding it for themselves? How does all this get driven? I think that what is um, maybe a shock to your um, um, to your viewers and listeners is, is that there is a conservative government in this country, i.e. a right-leaning government, um, and I can assure you they are not freedom lovers. I mean, you know, they've abandoned free. And I think what has happened is the law is used as a substitute for moral leadership, for having arguments. You know, if you don't like something, the instinct is to ban it. And I think that that's a, we've got ourselves into this terrible situation. Now, it's likely um, that um, the Labour Party, the Labour opposition, um, will get elected at the next election next year. And they've got even less familiarity with the concept of free speech and freedom. And I'm on the left. But, you know, you, you know, people might be shocked by the laws, but you'll know that culturally it's the same in the U.S., in as much as cancel culture running rampant, uh, you know, people being uh, uh, losing their jobs, their reputations and being absolutely vilified for their views. If they breach certain, you know, right on opinions, you're in trouble. And so even though you might have formally um, law, you don't have these anti free speech laws in the US. I think that we can safely say that the climate is still such that people are anxious about what they say in public. And you can't say that culture exists in the US as much as it does in the UK. I mean, arguably, it's even worse in some instances. Um, And I I think that there's in therefore it's a problem which Western countries have got, which is is that they've abandoned the uh, core principles of free speech as the bedrock of a democratic society. I think a lot of people, when they look at stuff like this, they say, yeah, the, this, the pendulum always swings one way and it swings back. Just wait a little while. Are you of the opinion that this will just swing back? No, the very opposite, actually, because we have socialized the generation of young people into um, believing that words are dangerous, that their safety, psychologically safe, that they feel safe that they feel comfortable, that they're not uh, discombobulated, as it were. That has become routine now. That is what young people think. Now, I'm not trying to uh, launch generation war because actually it's our responsibility for having socialised them that way. But these young people are no longer just, this is spilled way beyond university campuses, right? This is this is mainstream. And so you'll find that those people are not having a major influence on major corporates who, by the way, we've seen in the U.S. more than anyone, right, are prepared to do anything almost to keep their young millennial or their young staff happy, you know, so they are prepared to sacrifice some of their own um, uh, long-standing members of staff because there's a com- complaints from uh, new members of staff. Who will say, for example, somebody's transphobic or somebody has uh, uh, somebody will be accused of racism, not because they've said anything which in any shape or form we would have traditionally seen as racist, but because they don't go along with the uh, the orthodoxies of critical race theory. 
for example, about white supremacy and so on. And people who criticise Black Lives Matters are routinely were around the time uh, in the couple of years following the, the George Floyd uh, killing were routinely uh, described as racist if they didn't go along with a particular version of anti-racism as epitomised by Black Lives Matters. You have situations where we have compelled speech, people being forced to say or forced to take the knee or forced to go along with certain like like uh, using certain gender pronouns and so on and so forth. You know, uh, these things are compelled speech. So I, I think that, you know, for the pendulum to, s- to swing back, you need to have an argument. And what I found is that many of the most influential people in society in the UK, and I'm afraid I haven't noticed any much difference in the US, uh, who run major institutions or, you know, run major multinationals or are involved in government or in the civil service or what have you, they are not prepared to have these arguments out. They themselves are frightened they'll be cancelled if they challenge it. I mean, cancel culture has made cowards of very many people because, you know, if you get called out as a bigot, you know that you're in trouble, even if nobody thinks you're a bigot, by the way. Even if everybody thinks that you're totally fine, that whatever you said wasn't that big of a deal, they don't want to get pulled into the vortex of, you know, it's funny. I often think if you were to go back to, let's say, the mid 90s or even the mid 2000s and you were like, let me explain to you what has happened. It would be so difficult to explain how this came up as to be like trying to explain to somebody uh, you know, a foreign culture, like an Asian, you know, 100 year history, because things happen so fast and people's ways of approaching things seemingly changed almost overnight. When I was in college, the people that taught me about freedom of speech were my college communications professors, the ones that like you would take a media law class and they would show you like, this is just how far you can push this whole thing. And so, I mean, I know a lot of this has gone on on college campuses, but it, it's just astounding to me how quickly it has changed and that people don't have this sacrosanct uh, value of um, we protect free speech at all costs because if we don't, it could be bad for me. Yeah, well, I think that's, though, that one of the things that happened, I mean, I remember when I was trying to um, talk about the threat to free speech on campus, you know, maybe... I don't know, 15, 20 years ago now, I can't remember. And and I talked to some senior professors in some very good universities here. And they said, you you know, you have to be careful about stirring up the hornet's nest and they'll grow out of it. And so what happened was, was that too many people closed their eyes to this, weren't prepared to challenge it. It was almost as though... Um, you were accused somehow, you know, the way today when you try and raise some of these things, people say, oh, you're just stirring up the culture wars. Because so by by drawing attention to some of these egregious problems, that you're the problem, <laughs> that, you know, that you're meant to, we're all meant to kind of like look the other way. And I think that as a consequence of that, these ideas have just been able to percolate for quite a long time, bubbling under the surface with people just assuming that they were quite skin deep, superficial, you know, shallow, but they've actually seeped into all manner of uh, 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 society. And I think that in some ways, the people who run 
our societies have become discombobulated because they have lost the habit almost of arguing for the values that we stand on. You know, so so people don't quite know how to argue for free speech anymore. You know, they, they've kind of forgotten. You know, it's kind of like assumed. You can't assume anything. Every generation has to fight for freedom. And you can't assume that, the you know, the young people are going to go along with you just because they will they'll grow out of it and so on. That's not what's happening at all. And as I say, I mean, it's not, I, I'm not blaming the young people because very often it's their university professors who've introduced them to these ideas. Yeah. But, but what I'm saying, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, to your point, you have to practice argumentation all the time. And like, I think one of the false things that happens in people's minds, they listen to a lot of podcasts or whatever, you know, YouTube videos, and they hear their argument and they think, ah, I agree with that. But then when they go to put it out into the real world and they run into opposition or somebody pushing back on them, they're completely unprepared for, oh, the argument that I thought that they were going to give me, which I have a good retort to, is different. And so therefore they become frustrated and then all of a sudden it's easier not to have that argument. And since we aren't talking about big things or small things, people don't get the practice of it. Like it's rare, somebody, like I have a podcast, so I'm talking about ideas all the time. And I find out I get halfway into an idea and you're like, I actually don't know that as well as I thought I did. But if you don't have something like this, maybe the only person you're, you're arguing with is your roommate or your spouse or your whatever. And, it's, and you don't really know how to react to pressure. And I think people... Once they go through a couple of uncomfortable times, now say like, ah, maybe we shouldn't do this at all. Yeah. And also the consequences can be quite severe, can't they? I mean, you know, as we've said, I mean, if you, as it were, misspeak or you kind of think out loud and maybe say the wrong thing, the consequences can be social, you know, uh, isolation. You know, you can be kicked. I mean, I know that students, I know that they've maybe tried to oppose some of these things, uh, got turned on. Uh, by by just by activists, by the way, not by everyone, not by the majority. And the sort of the, the scenario set up, well, you're a bigot, you know, and, and if you don't want to be a bigot, you have to agree with us. Now, that's not the same, I think, as what we've had in the past, which is where you try and convince people. And I know that the last time we spoke, in fact, following that, you had Samandra Harkmason on your podcast talking about straw manning. You know, I was always encouraged to think of the absolute best arguments that would be used against me and so straw manning is where you really try and prepare yourself for that but there aren't debates anymore I mean it's very difficult when the the scenario is that you try and say well let's have this discussion out in public let's invite an array of different opinions and the as you know common practice these days is say I won't appear on a panel with so-and-so with so-and-so with so-and-so so actually People are stuck in echo chambers and they're not used to engaging with people who've got different opinions, which makes their arguments weaker. But also it means that, you know, whole swathes of people don't hear the other argument. And by the way, we're all in danger of being in echo chambers because, you know, once that happens and you can't get people to debate with you, then it can be comforting sense of solidarity, of course if you're with people who agree with you, but it's not healthy in a democratic society. And I think sometimes some of the, as it were, our side, when I say I don't want to make presumptions, I mean, our side, in, in terms of my side, who were 
the free speech people who are worried about uh, some of this um, this new ideology, this kind of critical theory ideology, destroying the basis on which you can have an argument. You know, it gets caricatured as woke versus anti-woke. And the anti-woke side, which I suppose I'm in, I don't like those words, um, are as bad as anyone else, you know, because they just go, oh, you're just woke. You're a snowflake. I mean, that's, I mean, that's as bad as anyone else, right? Or I, you tried to cancel my friends, so I'm now going to look through your Twitter feed or X feed and find things that you said when you were 15 so that I can cancel you. You know, so by the time you finished, we just end up constantly not engaging with each other's arguments, and you can be ferocious intellectually in that engagement, but actually trying to find ways of never having to encounter that argument by cancelling people and destroying their capacity to operate in the public sphere. Well, and the public sphere is also losing out on all this. I can remember, so uh, long-time listeners of the podcast probably know that Claire runs the Battle of Ideas, which is this amazing debate program that happens once a year. People come in from all over Europe, the UK, and they and they debate on hot topics. And so anyone you go to, it could be, on, you, you're like, I can't believe they're even putting this down in writing that they're going to talk about this, let alone then actually getting together in a room. And this was years ago that I went for the first time and I, I, I was shocked then. I can't even imagine it now. But I remember sitting in an auditorium. It was close to the end of the whole weekend and it was a bunch of college professors talking about fascism. And no one would even put together an argument of like a definition of what is fascism. And the crowd started like, uh, booing might be a bit extreme, but they definitely let the 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 panelists know, like, hey, we're here for you to say something of substance. But most places that never happens, right? Like in corporate America, the whole goal is to speak words and say as little as possible so that that way there's nothing to, there's no surface, no attack edge for you. But the public loses out on that. I never even thought that you couldn't define fascism or that that was even controversial. So and by the way, they were, professors, okay. they were professors in fascism. This was their, we didn't just ask a bunch of like professors in physics to define fascism. These are people who were like world renowned experts. But but anyway, um, timing wise, um, um, I, this is being uh, filmed and recorded as I am about to have the Battle of Ideas Festival. But you'll hear it afterwards. But but do look out for the films. And I've got my brochure here. So my colleagues can see that I'm doing due diligence and telling you all about it. But it's this weekend and we have 100 panel debates, 400 speakers and, you know, three and a half thousand attendees. And the public is part of that. So the point that you've made is we might have a panel of three or four people giving their view, but the public half of the time is the audience. So it's like a, a series of public conversations. And at any given time, you've got 10, 12 sessions at once. You choose what you go to and they can be on everything from, you know, artificial intelligence and the threats and opportunities it raises to um, what's happening in Israel, of course, to what does diversity really mean and everything in between the state, the economy uh, and so on and so forth. The reason why uh, we do this is to try and recreate the public square as it was ever envisaged to be. What's shocking is that we need to do it. I mean, this is what the public square was, you know, in, in any sort of political sense that you would go um, and discuss and debate these things. But guess what? We found that more 
um, progressive voices who say, yes, I'd really like to speak. And then they agree. And then the next minute they say, actually, I've decided I can't because my colleagues have said that it would be wrong to be seen to be endorsing the Battle of Ideas Festival. In other words, there is a pressure not to do this. Now, I mean, luckily, there's enough people who do do it. You know, we've got 400 speakers and that, let me tell you, they don't all agree. Um, but when you get into a situation where people who've got, for example, are very enthusiastic about net zero and environmentalism and want to come and debate with people who are not so enthusiastic about environmentalist, uh, uh, environmentalism as the only way to understand how we should organise society, uh, at the very least, that's interesting, right? And if you're confident in your views, we have people who agree to do that. And then they start getting got at by other environmentalists say you shouldn't engage in that. And I think it's an anti-democratic tendency, which is to say that people do not believe that you can persuade our fellow members of the public of a view. So it's almost like, you know, don't don't let's have the argument out. Now, I, I think myself, democracy requires the belief that we can all change our mind. And you, I, I, I was... and you change your mind. Yeah. I was at a, uh, I went to a satellite Battle of Ideas event in Germany, and it just so happened it was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the wall. And like, um, that was, I, I will remember that as a pivotal life moment, because up until that point, I had literally never heard anyone didn't like Martin Luther, or thought that he, you know, had all these bad things that he had done. It had, I had literally never heard it. And so you think about the value of getting people together. I don't have a horse in the race, bad guy, good guy. He was hundreds of years ago. You know, that's fine. But the fact that people felt really strongly about it, had really interesting and engaging arguments, has changed my perspective on history and the future. But if you don't have those arguments, then everybody in the audience doesn't even have a chance to know like, oh, there's something controversial here. There's something more to learn. And it's what the answer that I have in my head is not obviously true. Use a really interesting example, because one of the keynote debates that we've got this year at the Battle of Ideas is the war on the past and this kind of attempt at, at, at destroying real history and replacing it with a kind of version of today imposed on history. So, you know, this is partly the decolonization issue and, you know, everything is now seen through the prism of slavery, decolonization. You can't have a conversation everybody is seen through the moral standards of today or the political standards of today and as a consequence great philosophers are being cancelled so you know edinburgh university who who had a building called you know the hume building after the great scottish enlightenment thinker hume changed the name after you know 20 students went and did a petition in and said he was a white supremacist you know what it's like i mean you, every philosopher and obviously people lived in periods where, for example, slavery existed at the same time as them or what have you. Right. I and mean, we know all this. But the reason I'm saying that is not not that's fine for you to say I want us to uh, reassess or reappraise history. I'm not talking about a history that, that, that I'm not talking about us now being uncritical of historical figures. But you have to bring with it some intelligence, some information, some historical fact. And what's happening is, is that people are behaving as though everything's a meme. You know what I mean? So people will just say, oh, Winston Churchill, 
racist. You know, it's like, oh, and if you say what, they'll say, oh, so you support him then. So you're a white supremacist who supports him. You know what I mean? I, you can't get anywhere that way. And most of the people who are saying this, if you then, and this is happening with the Middle East, you know, people will say 75 years of occupation of Gaza. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? But that's a meme you've read because Gaza has not been occupied for 75 years. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Do you understand anything about the Middle East in history? And I, I'm somebody who has supported Palestinian self-determination for years. But I also understand that the Palestinian self, uh, you know, people who want Palestinian rights, two-state solution, this is a part of the world that's become completely taken over by radical Islamist thinking, right, which is completely different to those national liberation struggles of the past. And at the very least, we can now have a row if we all understand something about that, right? But no, that's not what you're doing. People are going to say, if you don't attack Israel for what's happening in Gaza now, you are pro-genocide and you want all Palestinians to be murdered and you think that Gaza, uh, the, the children of Gaza don't count. No, I'm not saying that, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. So, you know, the the problem we've got is that you need to be able to, I mean, we need to be able to talk about today, but we also need to be able to have nuanced, intelligent, contentious discussions about historical periods that might well inform the way we view today. It might well be that you understand something about Martin Luther differently and uh, uh, and the emergence of conscience and the importance of what Martin Luther did or the negatives around uh, uh, his um, uh, uh Assumption that you know we almost had no choice, you know, the, the removal of, uh, uh, of of subjectivity, all of these things. Um, or Martin Luther King, you might have opinions. You might say, well, he wasn't the hero that we thought he was, or you might say, no, he was the most important thinker in terms of civil rights. Let's have that argument. I don't mind. But what is happening now is, is that if you say I agree with Martin Luther King that we should judge people on their character, not their skin color, you're accused of effectively endorsing racism. Because, as you know, we now have to judge people on their skin colour. That's the new orthodoxy. So that's not an intelligent conversation. That is a, an attack based on ignorance, not history. So if you think about a non... Um, a, a, a non-discussion, right, where things are just put forward, one of the biggest things that people rally around flags, right? A flag is a symbol, and it's really sticky and stretchy so you can get a lot of people underneath a flag and uh, whoever controls the narrative about that flag gets to say what does this represent but somebody might come to underneath the flag for one reason another person i think about your views on free speech but then i think about okay um let's say you have pro-palestinian uh protesters and within that you start seeing people flying hamas flags or um, you know some other terrorist organization that that uh, that is you know universally understood the, the Taliban for example. How does a, a society deal with people within a protest movement under the flag of we're trying to protect people or we're trying to uh, support these people that you have other people that come in and either raise their own flags something like you know we support this form of terrorism or this ideology 
without um, society breaking down, but also without allowing that to foment revolution in your country. I think that in some ways society is breaking down and flags in this country have very in the news. So let me tell you the story. So first of all, Hamas is a prescribed organization. So it is illegal, uh, Hamas in, in the UK. Um, it's prescribed as a terrorist organization and we have so that would mean that membership is is illegal. Like you're not allowed to be yeah. a member. So then, so then, so then you have this. What does it mean if you support an illegal uh, organization like Hamas? And the the law is not quite sure. But this is what happened last weekend. Lots of people were waving um, I, Hamas or even similar flags to ISIS, right? Like ISIS, Islamic State. <laughs> And the police, the Metropolitan Police, were putting out on social media messages saying it would be wrong to see this flag as pro-Islamic state because there's a slight variation. And we've 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 um, we've we've gone to some scholars of flags and they've told us that this isn't quite the Islamic state. I mean, I can assure you the kids waving it thought it was Islamic state. Right. Anyway. And so it was the police who were explaining all this. I mean, on social media, it became this great thing. You know, people were shouting um, pro-jihadi slogans, right, and calling for jihad, right. So you know, at least there's a at least there's a sense in which I, as a free speaker, understand that inciting people to, you know, jihad is something that we should, you know, at least kind of pause. The police are putting out these statements saying jihad. Is it, one meaning is that the other meaning is an internal religious struggle. This was the London Metropolitan Police, right? In the meantime, in the meantime, a couple of guys who I, I have no doubt were being provocative got out Union Jack flags. They were arrested. What? Because they were seen to be being provocative. Then, in another instance, a a, a young man uh, brought an Israeli flag to the demonstration, the pro-Palestine uh, demonstration. Undoubtedly, that was provocative, by the way. I mean, you know, I know it was provocative. He got chased down, and I'm not kidding you, I really thought, my God, they're going to lynch him, right? He, that got, they got, he was protected, but the people who chased him down because he had the wrong flag, right? They, I think one person was arrested, even though there was a mob. So what I'm trying to say to you is, it's never easy, but there's something gone terribly wrong when the police almost refuse to police demonstrations in what would be normally common sense ways to ensure that you have maximized freedom, but you will deal with things which are obviously problematic. And as a consequence of the public being so infuriated by watching this, they call for more laws. And then opportunistic politicians say, oh, the problem is the police haven't got the laws. And it's like, yes, they have got the laws. They're not using the laws that they've got. But, but you're right to ask me the question because it is difficult and uncomfortable, right? I, I, you know, when I see these young people pulling down, you know, pulling down the posters of the children who are kidnapped, uh, you know, tearing them down. I don't know if you've seen these videos that are doing around. 
This is happening in the UK. It's happening all over America as well. People are putting up pictures of the kidnapped children. And then other people are coming along and tearing them down angrily and saying, I mean, it's like horrible. Why would you? And you, <laughs> your instinct is, why don't we arrest the people who are tearing the posters down? But actually, I have to be true to my beliefs and say that you're entitled to put the posters up. You're really entitled to pull them down. But actually, don't we need to see this? Because one of the things that we now can see is that we've got a real problem in the United Kingdom. We've got a real problem of identity politics where a wide range of people, either who are young uh, Muslims, often with families who've lived here for years, not about immigration in a straightforward way, are supporters of radical Islam, or they're prepared to look the other way if they're marching next to supporters of radical Islam, as is the the British left, which remember I'm part of, marching alongside, and when they hear jihadi slogans or anti-Semitic slogans, just can't hear them. At the very same time, this is the same people who are so hypersensitive on racism that if you say something like blacklisting, they'll try and get you cancelled because blacklisting apparently is, I mean, you know, I, I, it's a stupid example except that somebody nearly got cancelled for saying that phrase. So they're usually hypersensitive. They'll say that Shakespeare play is racist. You know, I need trigger warnings on everything I read because of racism. And yet they can be marching alongside people shouting anti-Semitic slogans and they go, well, it's understandable. You've got to understand because of Israel's aggression of Palestine. Right. So I think the, we need to maximize um, speech in order even that we identify the problematic ideas in society and don't drive them underground. Yeah, the most dangerous people in all of this are the well, it's probably two. You know, there's the mobs that are allowed to gather around this idea of, you know, what what you can and can't say. But it also is who is the person that decides what you can and can't say? Because ultimately that person is deciding what you can and can't think, what you can and can't rally around. And so the as soon as you start putting in you can have these flags or you can do these things and you start creating a distinction along political lines, like the, the example, the obvious one you learn in your first year of college or whatever, when they're like, well, you can't yell fire in a crowded you know, theater. Well, OK, but that's not a political statement. You're not you're not presupposing where this goes. And so you're saying you can't, you're not allowed to say that. But the the idea of giving power over to a politician is is just that it is taking power away from individuals and it is giving them it to the to the mob and to the powerful and it's I, it's so hard for me to understand why someone would want to do that because i think it's such a part of my value system and it's hard for me to imagine that my own countrymen don't feel that same way but they don't no they don't i think i think it is very difficult but as i say i think that we have to acknowledge that um Freedom is no longer, you know, you can no longer say to someone that's an assault on free speech and they become defensive. I mean, they say, yeah, well, it's hate speech, so I don't care. I mean, if you accuse someone of censorship, they'll say, yes, well, we need to censor those views because they're offensive or because they psychologically damage people. The uh, J.S. Mill notion of, of, of safety has now become of harm rather the harm principle 
which is unless it harms people, has now been expanded to mean psychological harm, which obviously means that you can say, I heard, you know, I've had, I've been cancelled by universities and they said that, that students would feel unsafe if I was on campus. They don't mean that they thought it was going to go around with a machete. You know, they, they, what they thought was, they, what they said was that my views, even though they didn't know what my views were going to be, um, uh, would make people feel unsafe. And they, they knew that because they'd seen some things I tweeted or whatever. You know, this is this is routine now. Um, so it's a very, we're in a very precarious situation. And, and, I, and I think that but what, what, one of the things that I learned was, after what we call 7-7 in the UK, which was when the, the tube bombings happened, which was kind of, you know, when I say R9-11, you know what I mean? Like 9-11 happened and then we had the 7-7. Um, I can't even remember. But obviously there's been a huge range of, of ISIS atrocities in, in, in Europe, um, um, you know, for some years. But 7-7 was terrible. The biggest, uh, as it were, terrorist uh, attack by ISIS in the UK. So after 7-7, the, the uh, U- universities in the UK decided to ban an organisation called Hizbut Tahrir. Uh, Hizbut and Islamicists, you know, they're, they're Islamicists, right? And they radical Islam supporters. And they banned Hizbut on campus. And I actually argued in defence of Hizbut not because I uh, thought that Hizbut were anything other than they were. But I thought that banning them turned them into free speech heroes. It gave them a certain amount of credibility. And I, uh, not all universities, some universities did it, then the National Union of Students did it. So his Bittuir apparently don't exist, right? That's not what happened. They just kind of renamed themselves, right? And for a start off. And so everybody thinks, oh, great, we haven't seen his Bittuir for a while because they're not here, which completely missed the point. But anyway, we should be having the arguments out. And they learned, as we realised that, you know, that there were certain things that they couldn't organise around openly because they might then get kicked out of college. So it all goes on. In other words, it goes underground. Right. Now we've got these demonstrations in London. And guess what? His Bittarira all over the bloody place. Right. Now, I in, in my attitude was to go to his Bittarira meetings at the time to speak on panels with with other people who, like myself, were free speeches, and argue with the young uh, Asian kids who were coming to the meeting and argue in defence of Enlightenment values and to argue for the rule of law in preference to Sharia law. And when they were saying to me, well, you should defend our right to free speech, I say, well, you know, that came from, you know, freedom of conscience. I said, that came from Locke. Right. You know, lock is right. <laughs> Sharia law won't give you that. You want me to deploy the philo- philosophical arguments that came from the Enlightenment to defend your right to organize. And you won't have anything to do with those arguments. You're not even familiar with them. So let me familiarize you. Anyway, you know, you can imagine a bit of a tussle. Anyway, that's what I believe is our responsibility, that you argue that you. And I hope, by the way, I hope that I won some hearts and minds. But but one of the things that happens is is that people are frightened to do it. And one in this country is slightly different in America, I think, because there's many, many, many Muslims in the UK. I mean, I don't mean that, I, I you know, stupid thing to say, but that's not a problem. You know, that, that there's lots. It's a it's a multi-faith country and all parties. But what you can't do is you can't 
constantly be told that, for example, if you criticize Islam or you make, a, you know, you say that there's radical Islam, that you're going to be accused of Islamophobia. And what happens is people are frightened. So we're in a situation whereby in France, a teacher only three years ago was beheaded, beheaded for showing a picture of Allah in a religious education lesson. And then in this country, a teacher also was showing a picture of uh, it was the cartoons, you know, from Charlie Hebdo. He wasn't showing them and laughing. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It was part of a lesson plan. There was a mob turned up at the school. That teacher ended up in hiding. The school suspended the teacher. Politicians to this day have never defended that teacher on any political side. He's still in hiding. Right now. That's because people won't intervene because they're frightened that somebody will think that they're being racist and Islamophobic. But I think it's absolutely patronizing and racist that if you want to identify one set of behavior, that you're assumed that you're attacking all Muslims. I'm not. I'm attacking that. I'm attacking that behavior. I don't think all Muslims think the same because I don't believe in identity politics. I don't think all Christians think the same. I don't think all white people think the same. I don't think all Afro-Caribbean people think the same or African-Americans think the same. No, that's it's not me that's doing that. It's other people doing it. So in other words, you can't hold people to account for their views or, or their actions if when you try to, you're accused of being prejudiced and bigoted. If, for example, you're a white person and you criticise somebody who's from a different ethnicity, why do you assume that that's because of their skin colour? It's because actually you're criticising what they're saying or what they're doing. And we all know that there's genuine, real racists and backward attitudes in every society, and they should be challenged and taken up when you hear them. I'm in such an, an I'm in an unusual position here in the U.S. In that I live in the centre of the country. I'm in St. Louis. And I spend a lot of time in rural America and with people that are in rural America. And I have deep conversations with people. I'm recording their life stories. So these people are trusting me enough to tell me about their lives. And there's this sense that there is like this deep brooding racism among people living in the middle or rural people or people that are uneducated. And uh, that is just as um, big of a caricature as the racist ideals that people think that they that they hold. But once it becomes endemic, once a culture believes like, oh, those people are bigoted and they're dumb and we need to protect ourselves from them. Like it's it is so crazy to me. I, certainly racism must exist. But to hear the president of the United States stand up and be like, White supremacy is the number one thing that we have to root out in all of America. This is our biggest problem. This is like you are throwing gasoline on 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 something here. And I don't and then you couple it with, well, there are extreme groups and there are people that are that are putting ideas out there that are crazy. The only way through this is uh, an open dialogue of ideas and. So let, let me transition. You've been in the House of Lords now for two years? Yeah, just two, years? Yeah, two and a half, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you spend a lot of your time putting arguments out. I see your videos all the time. Are you making a difference in by putting your ideas out there? Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> but 
I suppose uh, what I try and do, and this is where you hope, like you will with your podcast, where you hope you make a difference. I have a platform in the House of Lords, which is an unelected second chamber for people who don't know, and it therefore is 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 anti-democratic and I disapprove of it. But it's nonetheless, it's the legislators. You know, well, I, I help make the laws. Um, I'm very, I'm a non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. And of course, you know, I'm sure that I'm slightly indulged by my colleagues there who look and look and think, oh, she's off. But what I hope that I am able to do is to represent views that would not otherwise be heard in the seat of power. The point that you were just making then, and I, I, your assessment, by the way, is exactly what's happening in the UK, which is they are throwing gasoline on this, right, in relation to race, because white working class people who are not endemically racist, who are struggling to make a living, good, honest people are being vilified that because of their skin colour, maybe because they're a bit worried about immigration or because they voted to leave the European Union and Brexit, are racist, scum, Neanderthal, backward people. Once you do that and you turn people against each other in that way, in the way you described, and you have ethnicity and race and so on, this is dangerous. So lots of people feel voiceless in that situation. They feel that they can't speak, right? They've gotten, you know. And the only people they can speak to are the people that are like them that already are being persecuted as well. Isn't it? Because if you feel unrepresented, that there's no one to vote for, that nobody is listening to you, we know where that can go, as it were. And there are malign, bad faith actors who exploit those things on, 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 on the, you know, what's known as the far right or the far left, whichever way you, you know, there are people who exploit that. So, what at least I can try and do is to say things that other people won't say, you know, and to represent some views that people in power sometimes kind of go, God, I, what? I, I, I at least I've been given the freedom and the privilege, really, that I'm not beholden to a political party. I am in a great, uh, I, I, you know, I, I put out my speeches on social media all the time that I do in the House of Lords. I don't. You know, so you you can all you know sign up for my free Substack, um, where I put them out, and I do a I do you know I kind of do once a month or once a week or whatever a kind of report on what's happening in the House of Lords, what's happening in the heart of of power, because I I genuinely feel as though that if 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 we're talking about you know uh, echo chambers, I mean the Westminster elite, you know, it's a bubble. The people who run UK society are in a bubble. They talk to each other and they don't talk to anyone else and they don't often represent ordinary people. So I try and cut through that. Now, I'm not I, I'm not trying to present myself as some sort of like hero of the masses. And there are other people, of course, who, who do that. And I, and it would be, it's just kind of, I don't want to be over, overdo it here. But that's where I think I can make a difference. I can also say to the people in power, you don't seem to understand what's going on out there. You know, you don't know how people feel. I can also say to them, you're misrep. You know, we had a big uh, uh, a row about what what law to bring in about protecting academic freedom, and the government was surrounded by these people who were lobbying them, saying, "Oh, there isn't a problem of cancel culture on campus, right?" But the people who were saying that are in the House of Lords or who or, or what have you. That's because they run colleges, 
right? They're the vice chancellors. I mean, they weren't being cancelled because they were the people who were turning a blind eye when other people were being cancelled. So I was able, along with other people, to say, look, I'm telling you what ordinary students go through, right? Look, they're the... They, they're never going to be cancelled because they've got conventional views that never upset anyone and they're in power. We're talking about ordinary 19-year-old kids trying to raise issues and being driven out of campus or external speakers, etc. So I suppose I can just do that. So it's chipping away. And my, and my view is that we all have to do that, that everybody has to do that. And if we all chip away, that's something. And what we at least try and do with the Battle of Ideas Festival, the things that we do is the Academy of Ideas, is also create a sense of, not a safe space, but a sense of solidarity. So you just don't feel like you're going mad. You know, like, because sometimes people are sitting at home going, I'm going mad, I can't believe it. And at least you can sort of say, there's more people who think like that than you realise. Well, there's definitely a camaraderie at the Battle of Ideas that happens because you're kind of like, Hey, we're, we're sitting in here listening to these ideas that are, you know, uh, full of electricity. So I know that the battle will have already taken place by the time we publish this. But what are you excited about this year? What are the topics that you're like, all right, we're pushing the envelope with this one? Uh, goodness me, there's so much. I, I do think that the, uh, the discussions around um, who runs society, how it's run, why there's a crisis of leadership. I think it's called, you know, uh, you know, who's in power, the new elites. Looking, you know, at some of these points that, that we were making about how come multinational organisations have all gone woke, right? What happened there? <laughs> Why are all these people under pressure? Um, I think those things are very important to kind of really pull that apart. We're also doing quite a lot of discussion on the family, uh, whether the family's in jeopardy, family values, and that might sound very conservative for me, big lefty, but we're in a situation now where there's an actual argument going on about whether teachers should tell parents what their kids are being taught in schools when it comes to sex and relationship education. And if a child of even, you know, 12 or 13 says, I, I feel like a boy and they're a girl, that the teacher doesn't tell the parent, yeah? Oh, don't, I mean, and I, one of the big subjects that's happened here is that there's now a movement against homeschooling your kids. And so you have all these Harvard, you know, t professors that teach teachers and they're saying, we just can't let these parents, you know, indoctrinate exactly. all their kids with these racist ideas by being homeschooled. Yeah. And that's and exactly wanna... what they're saying. It's exactly the same. It's race in America. It's a bit race here, but it's all sorts of things. So that's very important. I think that we're also going to, uh, I think we're going to have some very important discussions as well, trying to come to terms, as it were, almost like the aftermath, I'm going to say aftermath, of, of lockdown, you know, because there's lots of kids not going to school now. And it's not just because their parents are homeschooling them, by the way, which is a new phenomenon in the UK, which is that people are not trusting schools. But also a lot of kids just disappeared. Now, you know, it's not surprising because we closed the schools down here. And there's a there's a sort of sense in which the social fabric of society is kind of slightly falling apart, right? Um, and so we need to kind of examine that. We're, um, at, you know, the post-lockdown period, misinformation, disinformation, who decides, right? Who decides what is misinformation? Who decides what's truth? 
um, you know, can you trust science when it's described as the science and presented to you as dogma? And if you disagree, you're told that you're part of the misinformation world. What we think about online censorship everywhere is having this debate now about whether there should be new laws. I mean, we just brought in this online safety bill in the UK, which is going to have a terrible impact on people's freedom to express themselves online. And I mean, I won't go into it. I mean, that's a whole different story, but it's happening everywhere. The European Union are also brought in uh, really draconian interventions on this score. And I think I already mentioned, you know, artificial intelligence. Is it scary? Is it a dystopian? Is it an opportunity? What do we think? We've got a whole strand of debates about the, you know, can artificial intelligence really replace art? I mean, can you get them to write the novel and we'll never notice if there's a novelist again? All of these important things. And I suppose underneath it all and loads of stuff on the gender and race issues, because they are big issues. But also the economy, we shouldn't forget, is falling apart. The economy is falling apart. <laughs> and the UK Inflation really wild. wild. Yeah. We've got a session on Trumpism. How do we explain it? This is kind of like anthropology for people in the UK. It's like, it's one thing saying that you understand why people might not be satisfied with Joe Biden's administration, but Trump, really, type of thing, right? And, you know, I think there's an argument to be had there, and we'll have people arguing, some people who are more sympathetic, to why, not even sympathetic to Trump, but sympathetic to why Trump would be popular. And other people who are abhorred by the, you know, the fact that no matter what you do to Trump, he still seems to survive, you know, put him in prison, he's going to get more votes, you know, that kind of thing. So all of these things, anyway, you get the gist. Um, in other words, everything and anything. And, I, you know, when you say what the hot topic, and, and, and obviously we'll be discussing Israel and anti-Semitism and what does hate, crime mean and what does uh, uh, all of these things I honestly learn as much from this as anyone I mean I'm organizing it but I'm also a punter and I listen to sessions that I don't know something about and I think wow you know I, I, I also love the fact that we have uh, so many young people and old people i.e. intergenerational without trying to tick boxes it's a very diverse audience of people from a whole range of social and ethnic backgrounds. And I only say that because people might think, oh, well, you know, no, everyone can come. And of course, what's fantastic then is maybe what you were saying, you know, I, I, I love it when young people come up at the end and say, I disagreed with so much, but at least I heard some other arguments that are really make me think again. That's what we're trying to do. That's what everyone should be trying to do. And, we owe it to young people to present them with a more complicated view of the world than that which they're going to find on social media. Well, I love it, and I am so glad that you're doing it, and it inspires me like uh, to try and do something else, whether it's more with the podcast or to try and arrange something. So good luck with the battle of ideas. And Rant, uh, let's say in the future we're going to collaborate on something and not just have it as that we do a podcast or let's try and do something together. I would do that in the blink of an eye. If we can, if we can make that try. work, that'd be great. Well, Claire, if people wanted to find out more, um, I know it'll be after the fact about the battle of ideas, where should they go? Well, I, I really do think that Substack works in this sense because it just means that 
you know, twice a week, you can find out what we're up to and you don't have to open it as a newsletter if you don't want to, but you can if it looks appealing. And all our work now goes into that. So um, it, it's Claire Fox and the Academy of Ideas Substack, you know, kind of Google and you'll find us. Um, and, you know, we have got websites, but they'll be there. And there will, in that Substack, we'll be putting out films, filmed debates that have happened at the Battle of Ideas so you can catch up. And uh, one thing you'll 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 like this, fans. Um, I don't know if the person um is listening or not. I um or anything. I got stopped in a street during the year. During this year, somebody who took a selfie with me, and uh, they first came across me on your podcast. <laughs> they, were, they were they were over as a tourist looking at you know the houses of parliament. <laughs> they literally stopped me. And said you're clever. It was very funny, and I did mean to email you and tell you because I couldn't believe it. But it's always worth uh, talking to each other because it means that we start to have solidarity, even with people we don't know. And and that person was following, and had signed up to our uh, Substack. That was the point. So um, that's my advert. Well, that's wonderful. And nothing makes me happier than to hear that uh, the podcast lends itself to people getting connected because that's what the world is all about. It's not just the ideas you hear. It's like, hey, that person had an idea and I'm going to contact them and I'm going to like I'm going to try and share ideas. I'm going to try and do something that that's why I do it. So this is great to hear. Well, good luck with the battle of ideas. I will be watching on social media. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) 